And Judith and I are happy to wish a happy birthday today to two of our, our, our listeners here on Iris. Happy birthday to Esther Mason of Stanhope and Matt Irwin of Pearson. Again, happy birthday, Esther Mason of Stanhope and Matt Irwin of Pearson. A couple of uh, celebrity birthdays to tell you about, more than a couple, just a few. Lyricist Tim Rice is 79. Comedian Tracy Morgan of 30 Rock is 55. And country singer Miranda Labert, Lambert is 40 years old. So if today's your birthday and you did not hear your name, give us a call here uh, at IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. You can give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. And if you're listening to us on any number of services, the Internet or on Iowa PBS, and you're not a registered listener, please contact us. We need to know who's listening, and that helps us keep our services free. And now it's time to turn to the obituaries in today's register. Here's Judith. We just have one obituary to read this morning, right? Yes. From Mitchellville, Annabelle Pearson, 94, died November 5, 2023, in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. She was born June 14, 1929, in Cedar Falls, Iowa. Services will be held Sunday, November 12, 2023. Please visit www.hamiltonsfuneralhome.com for more information. All right, and we will continue with uh, some more news now. Let me get to the right page. Um, Ah, this story. Steve Bannon appeals conviction in his January 6th contempt case. This story by the Associated Press, Dateline, Washington. Former President Donald Trump's longtime ally Steve Bannon on Thursday appealed his criminal conviction for defying a subpoena from the House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Bannon's attorney argued that he did not ignore the subpoena, but was trying to avoid running afoul of executive privilege objections that Mr. Trump had raised. Attorney David Schoen said, Mr. Bannon acted in the only way he understood from his lawyer that he was permitted to behave. He added that Bannon was wrongly blocked from making that argument at trial. Prosecutors, though, said Bannon was no longer working at the White House during the run-up to January 6th and refused to work with the committee to determine if there were questions that he could answer. Quote, Stephen Bannon deliberately chose not to comply in any way with lawful congressional subpoenas, said Prosecutor Elizabeth Danello. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit took the case under consideration. The 69-year-old Bannon was convicted last July of two counts of contempt of Congress and later sentenced that August to four months in prison. U.S. District Judge Carl Nichols put the sentence uh, on hold as his appeal played out, later saying in court documents that he expected the case to be overturned. A second Trump aide, trade advisor Peter Navarro, also was convicted of contempt of Congress this past September and also has vowed to appeal. The House panel had sought their testimony about Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. The House January 6th committee finished its work in January after a final report that said Trump criminally engaged in a multi-part conspiracy to overturn the lawful results of the 2020 election and failed to act to stop a mob of his supporters from attacking the Capitol. Bannon is also set to go on trial next May on separate money laundering, fraud, and conspiracy charges in New York related to his We Build the Wall campaign. He has pleaded not guilty to those state charges. 
He has also pleaded not guilty to charges alleging that he falsely promised people that all donations would go toward building a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. Instead, prosecutors allege that the money was used to enrich Bannon and others involved in the project. Biden. Workers need a fair shot. This story released by the Associated Press by Josh Boak and Chris Mandarian. Dateline, Belvedere, Illinois. President Joe Biden put on a red United Autos worker shirt on Thursday as he celebrated a labor deal that will prevent Belvedere's Stellantis plant from closing, treating the factory salvation as a vindication of his decision to stand with striking union members as they demanded higher wages. Biden told cheering auto workers in the community center in the northern Illinois city, American workers are ready to work harder than anyone else, but they just need to be given a shot, a fair shot, and a fair wage. He praised the union members as as tough, tough, tough as they come. Someone in the audience shouted to the president, that shirt looks good on you. I've worn this shirt a lot, man, Biden responded. You have no idea. I have been involved with the UAW longer than you have been alive. The crowd roared with laughter. Biden visited a UAW picket line in Michigan in September to support the union during its targeted strikes against Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, the maker of Jeep, Dodge, and Ram vehicles. The strikes have ended and contracts are still being finalized. Matt Franzen, the local UAW president who introduced Bryden, said he came out and stood with the picketers. He's always been for us and with us. He proved that. Biden reminded the audience that Donald Trump, the frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024, visited a non-union facility on his own trip to Michigan. Biden said, I hope you guys have a memory. Where I come from, it matters. Biden's re-election campaign on Thursday released a video that criticizes Trump's record on auto workers and manufacturing, while the ad shows the former president playing golf. Another clip shows Biden speaking through a bullhorn at the UAW picket line. Joe Biden doesn't just talk, he delivers, the narrator says. Biden learned that the Stellantis factory could close during a trip to Chicago on June 28, when he spoke about the economy. The prospect became an immediate priority for Biden. He ordered up an economic analysis and spoke to company officials about the plant, according to White House officials. The Democratic president wanted to show that his policies could deliver for workers rather than repeat the decades of factory closures that had gutted parts of the Midwest and fed into a deep political divide. Uh, Jen O'Malley-Dillon, White House Deputy Chief of Staff, said, The reopening goes to the heart of who he and how he has led. Celantis agreed to hire back 1,200 employees to build pickup trucks and to add 1,300 more workers for a battery factory. The resolution of the strike was an early victory for what Biden says is a worker-centered economy. But the success of the factory and of the tentative contract with workers will ultimately hinge on the ability of automakers to keep generating profits as they shift toward electric vehicles in a competitive market. Many voters still feel dour about the overall economy, and there is an open question as to whether the UAW contract and signs of wages outpacing inflation can change their views. 
In polls, U.S. adults have consistently given Biden low marks on the economy after a burst of inflation as the pandemic began to recede. O'Malley Dillon said the UAW contracts and the auto plant reopening reflect a larger focus on workers by the president. Unionized workers, I'm sorry, unionized nurses, truck drivers, and others have also negotiated to receive pay raises by pushing their employers to recognize the value of their work. On Wednesday, Hollywood actors joined scriptwriters by achieving a tentative contract agreement after a prolonged strike. It reflects a broader trend over the past year that was made possible in part by a strong strong job market as the unemployment rate is at a healthy 3.9%. Labor unions tend to be reliable supporters of Democrats, but by speaking at factories and union halls, Biden is also trying to reach disaffected blue-collar voters who found a voice in Trump. Biden argues that innovations... uh, Innovations within the auto sector, such as EVs, should not lead to layoffs and factory closures. Trump has said that the rise of EVs backed by the Biden administration will cost factory job losses. He has suggested that the work will migrate to China and the United States should stick with gasoline-powered vehicles, even though the emissions worsen climate change. Biden has a slightly better record on auto industry jobs than Trump. During Trump's presidency, the number of manufacturing jobs in the sector peaked a little more than 1 million in early 2019 and then began to decline, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. There are nearly 1.1 million auto manufacturing jobs under Biden. Uh, The electric vehicle shift does uh, carry a risk for automakers. Sales have started to slow amid concerns about recharging, and the expensive prices of the vehicles, despite tax incentives designed to improve affordability. On Thursday, Biden met with UAW President Sean Fain and Governor J.B. Pritzker, Democrat of Illinois. The president also headlined a fundraiser for his re-election campaign later Thursday. During the nearly 45-day strike that hit the automakers, the White House chose to talk to all parties while letting the UAW execute its strategy of targeted work stoppages. Biden took the step of joining workers on the picket line, a presidential first. In calls that White House officials had with Stellantis, the company was never pressured to open the Belvedere factory, but Biden raised the matter. His choice to sympathize with workers as the strike escalated carried some political risk as high interest rates on auto loans and inflation coming out of the pandemic had become points of criticism by Republican lawmakers. The contracts, if approved by 146,000 union members in the coming weeks, would dramatically raise pay for auto workers. They would get pay increases and cost-of-living adjustments that would translate into a 33% wage gain. Top assembly plant workers would earn roughly $42 per hour. And here's an update on the situation in Israel and Palestine. An expanding tide flees north Gaza. Civilians also shelter at a hospital as Israel and Hamas battle in the city. This story by the Associated Press. Crowds of Palestinian families stretching as far as the eye could see walked out of Gaza City and surrounding areas toward the south on Thursday to escape Israeli airstrikes and ground troops battling Hamas militants in dense urban battlegrounds. 
Others joined tens of thousands taking shelter at the city's biggest hospital not far from the fighting. Gaza's largest city is the focus of Israel's campaign to crush Hamas, following its deadly October 7th incursion, and the Israeli military says Hamas's main command center is located in and under the Shifa hospital complex. The militant group and hospital staff deny that claim, saying the military is creating a pretext to strike it. Growing numbers of people have been living in and around the hospital complex, hoping that it will be safer than their homes or UN shelters in the north, several of which have been hit repeatedly. Israeli troops were around two miles from the hospital, according to its director. The accelerating exodus to the south came as Israel agreed to a four-hour humanitarian pause each day and to open a second route for people to flee the north. Asked about the agreement in a Fox News interview that aired on Thursday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu replied that the fighting continues against the Hamas enemy, the Hamas terrorists. But in specific locations for a given period, a few hours here, a few hours there, we want to facilitate a safe passage of civilians away from the zone of fighting, and we're doing that. Meanwhile, Western and Arab officials gathered in Paris on Thursday to discuss ways of providing more aid to civilians in Gaza. Separately, mediators worked on a possible deal for a three-day ceasefire in exchange for the release of around a dozen hostages held by Hamas. That's according to two Egyptian officials, a United Nations official, and a Western diplomat. Uh, excuse me, sorry, missed a paragraph here. Israeli ground forces battled near Gaza's largest hospital, Shifa. Conditions for tens of thousands of people sheltering there have become catastrophic, according to a Palestinian journalist at the hospital. She, as well as several people who left the hospital to go south, said families are sleeping in hospital rooms, emergency rooms, surgical theaters, and the maternity ward, or on the streets outside. Daily food distributions helped a tiny number for a time, but there has been no bread the past four days, they said. Water is scarce and usually polluted, and few people can bathe. Still more families are arriving, believing that it is safer than fleeing to the south, where airstrikes also continue, although some have started to leave because of nearby missile strikes and the sound of clashes between Israeli forces and Hamas fighters. The hospital has been overwhelmed with daily waves of wounded people from airstrikes, while medical supplies have been running low and electricity shut off in many wards. The UN delivered two truckloads of supplies Wednesday night, the second delivery since the war began, enough to last a few hours, the director said. The director, Mohammed Abu Salmiya, told the Associated Press on Thursday, the conditions here are disastrous in every sense of the word. We're short on medicine and equipment, and the doctors and nurses are exhausted. We're unable to do much for the patients. International journalists who entered the north on a tour led by Israeli military on Wednesday saw heavily damaged buildings, fields of rubble, and toppled trees along the Mediterranean shoreline. More than two-thirds of Gaza's population of 2.3 million people have fled their homes since the war began, with hundreds of thousands heeding Israeli orders to flee to the southern part of the enclave. But the conditions there are also dire. Israel has continued to strike what it says are militant targets in the south, 
but often crushing homes with families trapped inside. Aid deliveries into Gaza from Egypt have reached an average of 100 trucks a day, according to the U.S. humanitarian envoy for the war, David Satterfield. Relief workers say that is still far below what's needed. The exodus from Gaza City and surrounding areas in the north has picked up in recent days. The United Nations said 50,000 people fled south on Gaza's main highway on Wednesday. Similar-sized crowds streamed out on Thursday, according to an Associated Press reporter on the scene, as they arrived out of the northern zone. Shots rang out in the distance, and smoke rose from blocks away as families made their way on foot with only what they could carry. Others rode on horse-drawn carts. One, a 28-year-old man, pointing to the possessions tied to his body, said, I'm carrying my house on my back. He had been walking for three hours. He said, we've been expelled. We've been put through a catastrophe. I don't know where my people are, and I don't know what's coming for us. His use of the Arabic word Nakba, which literally means catastrophe, is a reference to the expulsion or flight of about 700,000 Palestinians from their homes in what is now Israel during the 1948 war around Israel's creation. More than half of Gaza's residents are refugees from that war or their descendants. The Hamas-run Interior Ministry, which has urged Palestinians to stay in their homes, has told news outlets not to circulate footage, circulate footage of people fleeing. A month of relentless bombardment in Gaza since the Hamas attack has killed more than 10,800 Palestinians, nearly two-thirds of them women and minors, according to the Hamas Health Ministry. More than 2,300 others are believed to have been buried by strikes that in some cases have been demolishing entire city blocks. Israeli officials say thousands of Palestinian militants have been killed and blame civilian deaths on Hamas, accusing it of operating in residential areas and using Palestinian civilians as human shields. Hamas has denied this. Gaza's health ministry does not distinguish between civilians and combatants in its casualty reports. More than 1,400 people have died in Israel since the start of the war, most of them civilians killed by Hamas militants during their initial incursion on October 7th. Israel says 32 of its soldiers have been killed in Gaza since the ground offensive began. Palestinian militants have continued to fire rockets into Israel, and some 250,000 Israelis have been forced to evacuate from communities near Gaza and along the northern border with Lebanon, where Israeli forces and Hezbollah militants have traded fire repeatedly. A drone exploded in the yard of a house in Israel's Red Sea city of Eilat, E-I-L-A-T, causing no injuries, and a long-range surface-to-surface missile, whose source was under investigation, was intercepted before entering Israeli airspace, according to the Israeli military. Yemen's Houthi rebels said they fired a batch of missiles at Israel on Thursday, including toward Eilat, at least the fifth time the Iranian-backed force has tried to strike Israel. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces carried out its most intense raid in decades, storming the city of Jenin before dawn, sparking battles with Palestinian fighters that lasted into the afternoon and included an Israeli drone strike. 
At least 13 Palestinians were killed in the fighting, the Palestinian health ministry said, and Hamas acknowledged that nine of them were its fighters. The Israeli military put the number of militants killed at 10. And from page six of the Des Moines Register's uh, uh, front uh, um, section, five GOP hopefuls strive to stand out. This story by Philip M. Bailey and Joy Garrison of USA Today. Much has changed since Republicans looking to be president last gathered, particularly the number of candidates, five, on the debate stage after former Vice President Mike Pence dropped out and other White House hopefuls, such as North Dakota Governor Doug Burnham, Burgum failed to make the cut. One big issue since the last GOP primary debate has been a string of losses this week at the ballot box. We have become a party of losers, Ohio entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy said Wednesday in the Miami debate. One thing, however, has not changed, Donald Trump's massive polling lead. The former president again skipped a primary joust and held a separate rally at the same time. Rivals rip Trump, bemoan losses. From the outside of the primary, outset of the primary race, Republican challengers to Trump have struggled to articulate their case against him, but on Wednesday, they sharpened their attacks. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis brought up the poor showing in Tuesday's elections. The GOP failed to win the governor's race in Kentucky, lost control of the Virginia legislature, and get walloped uh, on abortion rights in Ohio. DeSantis said of Trump, he said Republicans were going to get tired of winning. I'm sick of Republicans losing. Nikki Haley, who was Trump's ambassador to the United Nations, said Trump was the right president when he was elected in 2016, but GOP voters cannot live in the past. I don't think he's the right president now, she said, singling out billions in debt accumulated under his administration. GOP is fully behind Israel. All five Republicans gave full-throated defenses of Israel in its war against Hamas, while condemning rising anti-Semitism on college campuses and blaming college presidents for allowing it to fester. DeSantis said, I'm sick of hearing other people blame Israel just for defending itself. We will stand with Israel in word and in deed, in public and in private. Senator Tim Scott, Republican from South Carolina, said the United States should consider striking Iran in response to Iranian-backed militias deemed responsible for more than 40 drone and rocket attacks on U.S. forces in Syria and Iraq. Scott said, if you want to make a difference, you cannot just continue to have strikes in Syria on warehouses. You actually have to cut off the head of the snake, and the head of the snake is Iran. Ramaswamy, despite suggesting in past comments that the United States should cut off aid to Israel, said, Israel has the right and the responsibility to defend itself. As for anti-Semitism on college campuses, Haley said college presidents should treat it as, it as they would if it were the Ku Klux Klan doing it. Every college president would be up in arms, she said. Scott said federal funding for universities should be revoked if they do not show sufficient support for Israel, and foreign students who are encouraging Jewish genocide should be deported. Economy, economy, economy. The U.S. Today's Suffolk 
University poll in October found almost 50% of voters surveyed said they believe America is in either a recession or depression, despite the Biden administration's efforts to focus on its policy wins and job gains. Scott talked about gas prices and how his focus as president would be using the country's natural resources before turning to foreign nations. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie said, energy reform is key. We need to do that first and foremost. DeSantis pledged to target any regulations or executive orders related to Bidenomics, President Joe Biden's term for his economic agenda. Divided on Ukraine funding plan. Biden's request for $60 billion in additional security assistance for Ukraine split the GOP candidates, reflecting growing opposition among conservatives. Scott said, we have to people to understand where the resources have gone. Biden has asked Congress to vote for $106 billion supplemental request that also includes $14 billion for Israel and U.S. border security, in addition to the Ukraine funds. Scott said... That's the wrong approach. He argued the U.S. should focus specifically on passing the Israel funding. Ramaswamy, who has opposed any support for Ukraine, accused his Republican rivals of coming round to his position. Being flat-footed on abortion. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in 2022, voters in seven states have either passed measures to protect reproductive rights or reject anti-abortion efforts. Asked about the path forward, DeSantis admitted conservatives have been caught flat-footed in the past year. Haley said she considers herself pro-life, but believes abortion is a personal issue for every woman and every man. Noting how unlikely it would be that Republicans could pass a federal abortion ban, given that it requires 60 votes in the Senate, she said conservative policymakers instead should focus on banning late-term abortions, making birth control accessible and ensuring women will not be imprisoned for receiving an abortion. Scott, who has courted the evangelical vote, pushed back. I would certainly, as President of the United States, have a 15-week national limit, he said. Ramaswamy, who noted it was his home state of Ohio, where the abortion referendum passed overwhelmingly on Tuesday, praised Scott for, quote, being honest about his stance on not making a political calculus like Haley. Uh, Ramaswamy said, it goes back to that Republican culture of losing. The Republicans did not have an alternative amendment or vision on the table. And we'll finish up um, before the top, uh, the bottom of the hour here with a couple of short stories, and then we'll change readers. This short story from Huntsville, Texas, a Texas man who said his death sentence was based on false and unscientific expert testimony was executed last night for killing a man during a robbery three decades ago. 53-year-old Brent Ray Brewer died by chemical injection at the state penitentiary in Huntsville, Texas, for the April 1990 death of Robert Laminack. He was pronounced dead at 6.39 local time, 15 minutes after a lethal dose of pentobarbital began flowing into his arms. Prosecutors had said that the victim, 66-year-old Laminek, gave Brewer and his girlfriend a ride to the Salvation Army location in Amarillo, Texas, when he was stabbed in the neck and robbed of $140. After a spiritual advisor standing next to Brewer in the death chamber said a brief prayer and Brewer responded, Amen, the inmate told the warden standing next to him that he wanted to make a final statement. He said, 
I would like to tell the family of the victim that I could never figure out the words to fix what I have broken. Members of the Lamanek family quietly watched through a window just feet away from him. He continued with his voice cracking, I just want you to know that this 53-year-old is not the same reckless 19-year-old kid from 1990. As the drugs took effect, he gasped twice, snored several times, and then took a few quiet breaths. Within 30 seconds, all movement stopped. And we'll close this section of our news reading this morning with this uh, sad story. Astronaut Frank Borman who commanded Apollo 8's historic Christmas 1968 flight that circled the moon 10 times and paved the way for the lunar landing the next year, has died at the age of 95. Frank Borman died Tuesday in Billings, Montana. Borman also led troubled Eastern Airlines in the 1970s and early 80s after leaving the astronaut corps. I can remember him doing a lot of TV commercials for Eastern Airlines. But he was best known for his NASA duties. He and his crew, James Lovell and William Anders, were the first Apollo mission to fly to the moon and to see Earth as a distant sphere in space. Launched from Florida's Cape Canaveral on December 21, 1968, the Apollo 8 trio spent three days traveling to the moon and slipped into lunar orbit on Christmas Eve. After they circled 10 times on December 24th and 25th, they headed for home on December 27th. Rest in peace, Frank Borman. Well, we'll take a short break now to allow our next readers to get in place. It's been our pleasure to read for you. Uh, this is Dave Buzik, and I've been uh, joined today by Judith Linden. We thank you for listening. Have a great weekend. There's more news to come shortly after this break.
Welcome back. Your new readers are Jim Hoffman and Lisa Horsch. We'll continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. And here's Jim with the first of our opinions. Thank you, Lisa, and good morning, everyone. Uh, we'll start off with the opinion page of the uh, USA Today uh, paper. And uh, I'm going to share an article by Chuck Hagel and Eileen Moore. Chuck Hagel is a Vietnam War co combat vet and a two-term U.S. Senator from Nebraska who was the nation's 24th Secretary of Defense and he's Chairman of the Council on Criminal Justice's Veterans Justice Commission. And Eileen Moore, a combat nurse with the U.S. Army in Vietnam, is an Associate Justice for the California 4th District Court of Appeals and serves on the commission. And they write, don't leave veterans behind in justice system. Veterans Day is a time of reflection and remembrance, a national pause, reminding us to honor those who have sacrificed to defend America's security. As veterans, we appreciate the gratitude, but we also call on our nation to confront a sobering reality. Far too often we are leaving our veterans behind, not on the battlefield, but within the confines of the criminal justice system. Each year roughly 200,000 active duty service members leave the military. We expect them to resume their responsibilities to their families and communities, but we don't give them much help with that transition. One survey found that among veterans who had traumatic experiences, more than half feel inadequately prepared to return to civilian life. 61% had trouble paying bills in the first few years after they left the military. 42% had trouble getting medical care for themselves or their family when they got out of the military, and 4 in 10 reported challenges with alcohol or drug misuse. 40% of incarcerated veterans have post-traumatic stress disorder. While most veterans navigate such hardships successfully, many struggle with traumatic brain injury, homelessness, and criminality. Roughly one in three veterans report that they have been arrested at some point in their lives compared with one in five non-veterans. And more than 180,000 veterans are incarcerated, accounting for nearly 8% of the state prison population and 5% of those in federal prisons. Underlying these numbers are the unique challenges, both visible and invisible, that veterans face upon returning to civilian life. Suffering from the strains of service, approximately 40% of incarcerated veterans have post-traumatic stress disorder, far exceeding the 6% prevalence of the disorder in the civilian population. Research consistently shows that PTSD increases the risk of violent conduct, criminal activity, and suicide leading veterans to inflict harm upon themselves and the communities they once fought to protect. 
There's reason to believe these dangerous consequences will multiply. Due to recruiting difficulties and our nation's reliance on a smaller fighting force, today's veterans are more likely than previous generations of soldiers to have suffered childhood trauma before their service, experienced multiple deployments and combat exposure during their service, and faced homelessness following discharge. Each of these factors increases the possibility that military veterans will engage in violence or other criminal behavior. If you read the tea leaves, this means we're facing an elevated public safety risk as a generation of veterans begin their civilian lives following two wars and two decades of conflict. The time to act is now. Fortunately, recognition of this problem is spreading. Veteran treatment courts modeled after drug and mental health courts now provide veterans who break the law and are diagnosed with mental health and or substance abuse disorders with the opportunity to avoid incarceration. If they commit to treatment and community supervision, Today, more than 600 VTCs operate across the country, but it's not nearly enough. Nearly 9 in 10 U.S. counties do not have an active veterans treatment court. Even when veterans live in a location with a treatment court, eligibility criteria nearly half exclude veterans with any type of violent felony. For instance, restrict access. Moreover, there are no standards ensuring that treatment courts use best practices, leaving each operating in isolation to figure out what works. To supplement these courts and reduce the number of veterans behind bars, we must do more to ensure former service members receive treatment for the risk factors underlying their criminal behavior. Recently, a national panel on which we serve released a blueprint that does just that, encouraging states to expand opportunities for veterans to access community supervision instead of prison and provide them with targeted treatment. Support for U.S. troops here at home will save lives. The federal government should incentivize states to adopt these reforms. Ensuring the soldiers we ask to protect our country get the support they need on the home front. Providing that support will save lives. Veterans suffering from issues like PTSD are not only more likely to engage in violence, but also are more likely to end up back in prison after any initial involvement with the justice system. Proper support can break this cycle. Given the strong link between justice system involvement and suicide among military veterans, support can also reduce the risk that veterans will take their own lives. The men and women who served our nation deserve our care, especially when they find themselves ensnared in the justice system due to problems stemming from their time in uniform. As we honor their service on Veterans Day, 
We must uphold the principles that guide us on the battlefield. We must never leave them behind. Thank you, Jim. GOP Democrats take note. Swift could shake shake presidential race. This is written by E.J. Montini for the Arizona Republic. When news broke Monday, the Gannett, which owns USA Today, the Arizona Republic, and many other newspapers and media outlets, hired a full-time reporter to cover singer-songwriter Taylor Swift. I knew what might be coming to a lot of us who work for the company, although, to be honest, I needed Google to catch some of the references. Like the reader who sent a note saying, My condolences, Eddie boy. This must be a difficult day for you, losing out on your chance to land the Taylor Swift gig, something for which a columnist who sings the same old tune over and over again might have been marginally qualified. I hope you got bad blood. Or this one from a self-subscribed Swifty who wrote, I'm sure you're disappointed that you weren't asked to take the Taylor Swift assignment, Mr. Montini. You may have thought you were ready for it, but you will never, ever, ever get that job. <laughs> there were more. I made jokes about it myself. Remember how the media underestimated Trump in 2016? The thing is, however, the backlash to the hiring of a journalistic James Boswell to shadow Taylor Swift reminds me of the reaction a lot of journalists had when Donald Trump entered the presidential race in 2015. For example, the online HuffPost wrote at the time, Trump's campaign is a sideshow. We won't take the bait. If you're interested in what the Donald has to say, you'll find it next to our stories on the Kardashians and the Bachelorette. And its editors were right. Trump's campaign was and still is a freakish variation on a campy reality show. But the other Republican candidates would have died for its ratings. And in 2023, they still would. Politicians in both parties bowed to the power of the Swifties. Taylor Swift is much more talented, much more sophisticated, and has as much of a societal force. Maybe more so. The day after she sat next to the mother of Kansas City Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey at a football game in September, Kelsey's jersey sales shot up 400%. The game was the most watched NFL game that weekend, and the female audience in every age group suddenly rose significantly. Last year, after there was a botched presale of tickets to Swift's concert tour, the outrage of her fans led to a hearing in the U.S. Senate where both Republicans and Democrats praised her and her followers. Senator Mike Lee, a Republican from Utah, said, as I was driving up this morning, I've never seen more smiling and happy demonstrators than I saw today. I think Swifties have figured something out. They're very good at getting their message across. Senator Amy Klobuchar, a Democrat from Minnesota, added, Sailor Taylor Swift fans sure caught on. I will get whatever allies I have to take on this case. 53% of American adults are Swift devotees. And who are these fans? A survey this morning by Morning Consult said 53% of American adults are Swift devotees. There are almost as many men as women, almost as many Republicans and independents as Democrats, and they include baby boomers, millennials, Gen Xers, and young adults from Gen Z. In other words, a constituency that could make or break a national political campaign. Think about it. Nearly every news operation in the United States and the world 
expended a wildly inordinate amount of resources to provide ongoing daily coverage of Swift's flirtation with a football player. Imagine what we'd do, what the Swifties would do, if she publicly and wholeheartedly endorsed a presidential candidate. These are strange times, I'll admit, but saying Taylor Swift could not swing the outcome of the presidential election if she was determined to do so is like saying in 2015 that Donald Trump is a sideshow. Call me crazy, but as the song says, haters gonna hate, 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 hate. I'm just gonna shake, 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 shake. I shake it off. Jim? Thanks, Lisa. And uh, we turn our attention to sports here for a little bit. <clears throat> this is from the Des Moines Register. Uh, uh, Chad Lestikow, uh, who's Des Moines Register and USA Today Network uh, sports writer. Uh, Terry Brands, Kirk Ferentz, criticize NCAA, want logic to prevail. The NCAA dropped some news Wednesday that affected athletes at the state of Iowa, two biggest universities, and it wasn't good news. The governing body issued guidance that athletes who placed any wager on their own school, but not their own sport, would be subject to a loss of one year of eligibility, which was a reduction of the previous punishment of a lifetime ban from NCAA sports. However, indications a few weeks ago were that those athletes would be reinstated immediately. That reversal irked some heavy-hitting coaches at the University of Iowa, who sounded off with criticism to what they felt was an outdated NCAA. For Iowa football, the career effectively ended for defensive tackle Noah Shannon, who reportedly placed a single wager on an Iowa women's basketball game. For Iowa wrestling, four senior starters were impacted by the ruling. 157-pounder <clears throat> Kobe uh, Seabracht, 174-pounder Nelson Brands, 184-pounder Abe Assad, and heavyweight Tony Cassiope. Iowa State football and wrestling also had athletes affected. Brand's father, Terry Brands, is Iowa wrestling's longtime associate head coach. Here is what Brands told the Des Moines Register in a text message statement on Wednesday night. Hawkeye Nation and our brothers from Iowa State are battling for logic to prevail in an unprecedented standalone struggle, Brands wrote. Only athletes from two institutions in Iowa have been targeted. No other D1 institution in this country has been targeted. This is an NCAA membership committee that has a chance to modernize our NCAA, and they continue not to account for a rapidly changing culture. The penalty for athletes who did not break any laws, did not bet on themselves, did not bet on their sport, somehow is the same for, as for those who compromised the integrity of college athletics. Cass, Nelson, Kobe, and Abe have been steadfast through this all and will remain so. We have appeals left with two of these awesome individuals and will never rest on working for an overhaul of an outdated NCAA and its leadership. 
Earlier Wednesday, Iowa football coach Ferentz teed off on the NCAA during his weekly radio show, arguing that the organization has been way too slow to react to the times during the past decade. Then via an official statement, he swung again. I am heartbroken for Noah Shannon and his family that the NCAA has come to this conclusion, Ferentz said. Noah did not break any laws. He did not commit any crimes. And yet he is being severely overpunished by a membership committee that refuses to see perspective or use common sense. I have said many times that I think it is peculiar that the state of Iowa is uniquely the focus of this investigation. Noah is being sidelined because the NCAA is ruling on an investigation that they did not instigate, using an uneven system of justice to severely punish an excellent young man. It is just wrong. And in college football, simple mishap hurt ISU versus Kansas. This is written by Travis Hines, Dateline Ames. It was the type of play Iowa State runs all of the time. If the defense does this, then the Cyclones do that. If the defense does X, then the Cyclones do Y. So when quarterback Rocco Becht and wide receiver Jaden Higgins scanned the defense early in the second quarter against Kansas last weekend, it's something they have done and executed time and again. This time, though, the two did not see the same thing. It resulted in Becht throwing the ball nowhere near Higgins, but almost directly to the Jayhawks, Romello Dotson, who then sprinted 50 yards into the end zone for a pick six in a game ultimately decided by seven points, 28 to 21 in Kansas's favor. You never know when those game-changing moments are, Iowa State offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach Nate Schielhaus said Tuesday. A lot of times you assume they're going to be somewhere late in the fourth quarter and tie ball game with everything on the line. It's fourth down and you realize it. But I think for us, it's going, it's, it's being able to reflect back in the first third down of the game, the second, second down of the game. Some of those moments I thought we could have won early. This pick six was the most dramatic example for Iowa State in is uh, their season is five to four, they are four to two in the Big 12, of simply failing to execute at the same high level last Saturday that the Cyclones had largely operated at over the course of their three-game winning streak. We just really weren't in sync, Iowa State Matt, coach Matt Campbell said after the loss. To be open in play calling, you have to have some precision in detail. That's the word tonight, just a lack of precision and detail. For the pick six, it was a simple but costly mistake, a miscommunication, Campbell said. Rocco thought it was going to be one route, it was a red route, and then those things happen. You have to live with it and learn from it. That type of route in which the quarterback and receivers adjust their plans based on the defense's coverage is a major part of the Cyclones' playbook. There's a lot that we do throughout the course of the game that we do put options in our receivers' plates and our quarterback's plates, Shieldhouse said. 
and expect them to be on the same page. We're very conscious of not ever having any gray area with that. You've seen these guys execute the same exact call. In that moment, for whatever reason, those guys weren't on the same page, which there's no excuse because not only did we feel like it should have been a first down play, but it results in a dramatic change in the game early on and puts you down. Making the moment even more excruciating for Iowa State is that it was rare but hugely damaging mistake in the passing game. For the pick, Becht was 16 of 20 for 196 yards. What I was proud of, very proud of, is his ability to respond, Campbell said, of the redshirt freshman. He came back and he played a great football game. That can rattle you. That's not easy. Beck said after the game that the slow start was a product of not making the plays that were available to the Cyclones, who traveled to BYU, who has a record 5-4, and they are 2-4 in the Big 12 on Saturday. It will be on ESPN at, at 9.15 p.m., looking to clinch bowl eligibility with a win. I've got to be better in that part, he said Saturday. I've got to be locked into the details and precision within the play I'll get better at it, but that's the main reason for a slow start. We had stuff that was there, and we just couldn't execute in some areas. Jim? Thanks, Lisa. And we have uh, time here to recognize the Register's Athletes of the Week. Uh, Anthony Christian, volleyball player Katie Quick, and Valley football player Jaden McGregory were voted the Des Moines Register's Iowa ortho female and male athletes of the week. Quick one female athlete of the week with 87% of the vote. She led Ankeny Christian to a repeat state volleyball championship in class 1A. Did a masterful job of running the Eagles attack and victories over Newell Fonda, BCL, UW, and Holy Trinity Catholic. And uh, McGregory won male athlete of the week with 44% of the vote he led Valley to its 20-7 5A football quarterfinal win over Waukee. McGregory caught a 71-yard touchdown pass and also blocked a field goal, which he returned 70 yards for a score to lead the Tigers back to the Unidome. And now we'll read Dear Abby. War letters project Mark's 25th year or War Letters Project marks 25th year as work continues. Dear readers, 25 years ago tomorrow, I told you about a new nationwide effort to honor and remember our nation's troops, veterans, and families by seeking out and preserving their war correspondence from every conflict in U.S. history. The response was overwhelming. The founder of this initiative, Andy Carroll, just told me that as of this week and on this special 25th anniversary, the archive has collected more than 200,000 war-related letters and emails. The nonprofit organization Andy created, the Center for American War Letters, call based on the Chapman University or based at Chapman University in California is still seeking correspondence. I would like to thank those of you who have already donated letters to call for sharing them and encourage those of you who are not aware of call but might have letters to contribute to visit its website warletters.us. To learn more, Call is especially interested in any correspondence, including emails from younger veterans who have served in Iraq and Afghanistan. Love, Abby. 
Here's a letter. Dear Abby, over the past few months, due to extenuating circumstances, I have been spending a couple of days a month at my sister's. While there, I sometimes had the feeling that something was crawling on me, but thought it was just the idea of being somewhere other than my home. Last time, however, I woke up during the night, not only with the crawling feeling, but also the sound of buzzing in my ear. I also noticed that when I sat in the spot where I usually do, bugs were getting in my hair. Now my sister is asking me when I want to come and stay for a couple of days again. I don't want to hurt her feelings, but I don't want to deal with the bugs again. What should I do? Wary in West Virginia. Dear Wary, what you should do is level with your sister. Explain that during the last few visits, you have felt something crawling or buzzing while you were in bed and that you also noticed some insects getting into your hair. Your sister's home may have an infestation of some kind, which won't get any better until she calls a pest control company. Dear Abby, my husband is deceased. I have two grandsons, ages 42 and 39, and a great-grandson, age 24, living with me. None are married. I do not allow overnight guests. This morning at 3, I heard a girl come down upstairs from the downstairs bedroom to get another girl. I was livid. Am I wrong to give them walking papers? I've told them before this was a no-no. They thought I was asleep. I was reading. Caught them in Illinois. Abby says, Dear Cottom, if you prefer not to have men mating like rabbits under your roof while all you have to do is book your wishes, should prevail. I'm going to read that again. Let's see. Under your roof while all you have is a book, your wishes should prevail. If you're, It's your house. It's your rules. It's time these naughty boys found a place of their own and you are within your rights to insist upon it. That brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today, Friday, November 10th. I'm Lisa Horsch, and my, micro my partner at the microphone has been Jim Hoffman. Earlier, you heard from Dave Buziak and Judith Linden. You can listen to IRA's programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.